Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we welcome Avi Lipkin back to the program with a world prophetic update. But first, James Collins and Larry Spargimino discuss the brand new resource from Pastor Larry looking verse by verse at the book of Hebrews. We are so blessed to have in-person conferences all across the country this year. Tri-Cities Tennessee Prophecy Conference is this Friday and Saturday. Next, we'll be in Fort Wayne, Indiana, April 22nd and 23rd. Billy Crone joins us in Wichita, Kansas, May 6th and 7th. Get all the details by visiting the events page of our website, swrc.com. Now, here's our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino and staff evangelist James Collins. The Epistle to the Hebrews is one of the key books in the New Testament. It is rich in spiritual instruction, and it reveals much about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is the captain of our salvation, the apostle and high priest of our profession, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the mediator of the New Testament, the great shepherd of the sheep, and the author and finisher of our faith. Without a doubt, Hebrews is one of the greatest theological works of the New Testament. Joining me today to talk about Hebrews is the host of The Watchman on the Wall, Dr. Larry Spargimino. Dr. Spargimino has just released a wonderful set of DVDs titled By Faith, which contains over four hours of verse-by-verse teaching through Hebrews. Pastor Larry, welcome. I appreciate you sitting down to talk with me about the book of Hebrews today. Well, James, always a great, great pleasure. I spoke about the importance of the book in my introduction, but let me ask you, what is the importance of the book of Hebrews? It was written to Jews living in the middle of the first century AD. These were Jews who became followers of Jesus Christ. However, they were under intense pressure to return to Judaism. Hebrews gives us a very exalted picture of Jesus Christ. Because of his once and for all sacrifice, all other sacrifices are rendered unnecessary. So like you said, that is pretty important. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, Hebrews contrasts the repeated offerings of the Old Testament priesthood with the once and for all offering of Jesus Christ. Quote, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So the priests of the Old Testament have to stand every day. But our great high priest, Jesus Christ, made a sacrifice of unlimited efficacy and sat down. Why should they go back to those sacrifices in the Old Testament? So that is an exalted picture of Jesus. Well, Dr. Spargimino, as I read the book of Hebrews, I think one of the main themes is the superiority of Christ over even Moses, which for a Jewish person is very amazing, isn't it? Yes, that's very true, because some of the most exalted statements about Jesus Christ in the Bible are in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, verse 2 and following, we read that he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down 
on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So, James, in this passage, we learn that Jesus Christ is heir of all things. Wow, he was involved in the creation of the universe. He upholds all things by his almighty word. And also, Jesus Christ is much better than the angels. Now, that's pretty exalted. But listen to this. In chapter 1, verse 8, the author writes, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verse 10 and following, while still writing about Jesus Christ, the author quotes from Psalm 102, but applies the words the psalmist wrote concerning Yahweh, or Jehovah, Almighty God, he applies those words to Jesus, quote, And thou, Lord, meaning Jesus, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou, meaning Jesus, fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same." and thy years shall not fail. So, in Psalm 102, this was spoken of Almighty God, but the author of Hebrews applies it to the Son. Jesus is Almighty God. I mean, this is about as exalted as you can get. If you want to know who Jesus is, read this stuff. Well, I want to go back and talk about the sacrificial system. Certainly, Hebrews makes it very clear that the Old Testament sacrificial system was temporary. The law was a shadow of good things to come. Now, the Jewish Roots Movement today, I think they need to read the book of Hebrews. Our faith has Jewish roots, but some in the Jewish Roots Movement forget that we're now living in the New Covenant. It seems like the Judaizers of old are still very much alive. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree with you 100%. Hebrews 10 verse 1 and following says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Notice that, a shadow, okay? If I were away from my wife, I wouldn't want a shadow. I'd want to be with her. So here the law is just a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. And it says, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now notice those words, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And then verse 2 of Hebrews 10 continues the thought. It says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. I mean, I can just think, if I were a Jewish Christian in the New Testament, I was thinking of going back to the Old Testament. I'd say, wow, I better think about this and pray about this. (laughs) Well, let's talk about Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How does Melchizedek fit into the picture? According to chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, This is another way that the author of Hebrews is showing his Jewish readers the superiority of Jesus, who, by the shedding of his blood, has confirmed a new and better covenant. Now, Melchizedek and Abraham met after Abraham defeated Cater Laomer and his allies. Melchizedek presented bread and wine to Abraham and his weary men, demonstrating friendship. Now, listen. Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham and praised God for giving Abraham victory in battle. 
Abraham presented Melchizedek with a tithe, a tenth of all the items he gathered. So by this act, Abraham indicated that he recognized Melchizedek as a priest who ranked higher spiritually than he. Now Hebrews 7 verse 4 says, Now consider how great this man was, referring to Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And then in verse 9, we read that Levi, who was yet in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Even Levi, representing the Levitical priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek before he was born. That's how great Melchizedek is. So it is possible, and I would say highly likely, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 7 verse 3 speaks of Melchizedek and says, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, some think this means that Melchizedek had no recorded genealogy. He was a human without a recorded genealogy. But that's reading into the text what is not there. Melchizedek was, I believe, a Christophany, a manifestation of Jesus Christ prior to the Incarnation. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 6.20 says that Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's part of the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. So the term order usually indicates a succession of priests holding the office. None are ever mentioned here, however, and in the long interval from Melchizedek to Christ. So this leads me to assume that Christ and Melchizedek are really the same person. Thus the word order is eternally vested in Christ and in Christ alone. Another, I mean, this is a powerful book. If somebody wants to know who's Jesus, you tell them about Jesus in Hebrews and they'll find out a lot about him. I'm visiting today with Dr. Larry Spargimino. We're talking about his DVD set, By Faith. This DVD set contains over four hours of verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Hebrews, and you can get a copy right now by calling toll-free 1-800-652-1144, 1-800-652-1144, or you can always order online at swrc.com. That's swrc.com. When people talk about the book of Hebrews, this question generally comes up. Who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? Do you think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews? Well, Hebrews is anonymous, so the question of who wrote it is up for debate. No matter how smart you are, you really can't be sure. Now, some say that Paul wrote it, but did not put his name on it because of the intense dislike the Jews had for the Apostle Paul. Now, that's a possibility because, you know, they regarded him as a false prophet. They claimed he used grace to cancel the law and all those things. Now, Ancient tradition claims Pauline authorship, but in chapter 2, James, verse 3, the author of Hebrews suggests his knowledge was secondhand. The information was, quote, confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, Paul vehemently declares in his letters that his knowledge of Christ and of Christian truth was firsthand. So, on the basis of Hebrews 2, verse 3, some believe that Luke wrote Hebrews. Luke, of course, wrote to Theophilus and said that he had investigated everything carefully. So it sounds kind of like Luke on the basis of this. So who wrote the book? Well, a lot of people do argue for Luke and authorship, but Luke was not a member of the Jewish priesthood. 
whoever wrote the book knew a lot about temple worship. Now, we know that both Barnabas and Silas were leaders in the Jerusalem church and thus had the qualifications to write to Jewish Christians. Barnabas was a Levite and had lots of knowledge about the sacrificial system. Apollos is another likely candidate. However, the early church did not attribute the book to Barnabas, Silas, or Apollos. They attributed it to Paul, even though it's synonymous. So we simply can't be too dogmatic about who wrote it. Well, now, there are those that are very dogmatic about it. They're very serious. They insist that Hebrews was written by Paul. Why is that so important to them? Yes, there are some who, if you deny Pauline authorship, they're quite unhappy about you or with you. James, you know, I used to be your professor many years ago. I have a very high view of the inspiration of the Bible. It's God's Word. I don't find any mistakes in it. If someone finds a mistake in the Bible, they're mistaken. So what this means is that what the Bible says is inspired by God, and what it does not say is also inspired by God. It does not say that Paul wrote Hebrews. What it does say, what it doesn't say, is inspired by God. So I trust God. If he did not say Paul wrote Hebrews, I'm not going to insist that Paul wrote Hebrews, although he's a likely candidate, and I'm not going to defend something that God did not say. So if we try to say something that God did not say, that means we think we're smarter than God and need to correct God. So I'm wishy-washy on that because the Scripture doesn't say, and I think that's the way we need to be. Let's talk about a very controversial passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, where There we read, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. What can you tell us about that passage? This has been one of those passages that seems to defy a complete understanding. But, you know, in the second century, persecution against Christians became more widespread, endorsed by the emperor Domitian. The persecution was vicious, even more so than under Nero in the middle of the first century. And some Christians actually defected from the faith and no longer identify with Jesus Christ. And these verses were used against defectors because they were not faithful to the Lord. They have been rejected by God and are forever lost. Hell is their final destination. So this was one of the views of the early church. Now, there are people who teach that a person can lose their salvation. Now, you and I don't hold that, but they say, well, this is a proof text. This passage proves more than they would want to admit. It's really interesting because they regularly appeal to backsliders to get right with God and come back to the Lord. However, this passage teaches that those who fall away can never come back to God. So it doesn't really fit. If you believe that, then the backsliders are gone. And nobody believes that because it says it's impossible, quote, to renew them again unto repentance. So like I say, this is not a good text for those who believe you can be saved and be unsaved or be lost. If you study the text and context, it's quite clear that the author is not speaking about the readers. That's very important. In fact, in verse 9, he writes, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. 
And then in verse 10, he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. I think the author is encouraging the Hebrews that God is gracious, that they have a perfect high priest, that they are part of a better covenant, and that therefore God is faithful. That's why he tells them, but beloved, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. He believes that they were saved, and he's trying to say, don't look at that dark side. God loves you. God is faithful. The works that you've done, the good things that you've done, God is not going to forget the labor of love and how you've helped the saints. Evidently, they were pretty good Christians. So I think he's really trying to encourage them. And what he says about being lost, hey, it doesn't apply to you. Hebrews, of course, has a lot of in-depth references to the priesthood and also to the sacrificial system. But starting in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a very famous, very well-known passage there about faith's hall of fame. What do we learn from that passage, and how does Hebrews 11 fit into the general theme overall of the book of Hebrews? Well, James, Hebrews 11 does not give a lengthy definition of faith, but it shows faith in action, how faith impacted the men and women of faith. So, in a sense, it's like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. The love chapter does not give a philosophical, exegetical, lengthy definition of love, but rather shows how love acts. And so Hebrews 11 shows how faith acts. Hebrews 11:1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Things hoped for refers to future realities and promises from God about the future. We have a great future, and we are to claim those promises through faith. The evidence of things not seen refers to present realities that are unseen. Now, what are those present realities? Well, divine guidance, God promises that, protection, supernatural joy that God's people are blessed with. As we live a life of trust and faith, we are convinced of the reality of those things not seen. Now, the first lesson of faith is provided by Abel. In verse 4, we read, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In what ways was his sacrifice better? That's a good question. Was it because his was animal and Cain's vegetable? Now, I've heard that interpretation. Or his with blood and Cain's without blood? Now, both Hebrews and Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 15 make it clear that it was not the offering that made it acceptable. God accepts both grain and animal offerings. It was the character of the worshiper that determined whether or not one offering was acceptable and the other was not. So Abel offered his by faith. Cain obviously did not. Now Hebrews eleven seven is another key verse, I think, to understanding the whole passage. It says, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark. Noah was asked to do in faith things that did not fit into his previous experience. Now, that takes a lot of faith. He had never seen rain, yet God told him to build an ark because a flood is on the way, and he in faith obeyed. Hebrews is one of the two greatest theological treatises of the New Testament. It is the Leviticus of the New Testament detailing how the Lord Jesus Christ is both the fulfillment and the successor to all that had gone on before. In his brand new DVD, Dr. Larry Spargimino contrasts conditional promises of the past with unconditional promises of the new covenant, exchanging the shadows for substance. 
This study contains over four hours of verse-by-verse -verse teaching on three DVDs. Order your copy of By Faith, Hebrews Verse-by-Verse -verse when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Dr. Spargermino is back with special guest Avi Lipkin to share with us a world prophetic update. We have a dear friend with us at the microphone. It's Avi Lipkin. Avi Lipkin is a very interesting fellow because he pokes his nose into all kinds of stuff. And then he comes out, not with the bloody nose, but with a lot of good information. Avi, we love you very much. And I'm speaking about myself, all of us here at Southwest Radio Church, as well as our listeners. Well, we've been working together since 1995. So that's 26 years. So that says something. Yes, we've traveled around and spent time together right. and eaten meals together and preached together. So tell us about something that we are all concerned about. China is talking about, well, it's got a hypersonic missile. Right. The Russians have a hypersonic missile. We fired a test hypersonic missile recently and it failed. It went poof or something like that. And then the Communist Party in China, they're very militant. They tell us that they can get rid of us. And they mean business. And I think they do. What's going to happen now? We've got Russia, we've got China, we've got Iran is in the mix. What's going on? Firstly, I would need about three hours to give a proper answer to that, but we're going to do a short message. I'm going to be very brief, very concise. I think that perhaps the United States is giving the world a vision of a weak country and a weak leadership, and that is basically enticing, especially the Chinese, yes, to attack America. I think what we're looking at here with communist China today is a repeat of what we saw with Tojo Japan in the 30s and 40s, where the Japanese imperial military leaders were all saying, oh, this America is a pushover, they're never going to fight, they're pacifists, they're lazy, they're stupid. And Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto said, no, no, you got it all wrong, don't mess with the Americans. And nobody listened to him. And so Japan eventually got creamed. They lost a war in which America mobilized, the whole country mobilized to defeat the Japanese. I think today China is looking at America exactly in the same wrong way that the Japanese did in the 30s and 40s. And so I think China is kind of saying, well, you know, Americans are lazy, Americans are stupid, America has a weak president. It's very similar to Roosevelt in the 30s and 40s, Democrat Socialist. And it reminds me of when we were kids in school. I imagine you probably saw that too. There's always some kid who was very unpopular in class. And so somebody would take a piece of paper and write down on the paper, kick me, and glue it to his, the other guy's pants. So we have a president in the United States today that is radiating kick me. And so, you know, the Chinese, I think to a lesser extent, the Russians. I think the Russians are smart enough to understand the kind of weapons that the United States has had going all the way back to Star Wars in the 80s with Reagan. I'll say something very cruel. I think that there are people in the American military industrial complex with a very, very itchy finger. And all we need is for one hypersonic Chinese missile to hit an American city, kill a million people, two million people, 90% uh, of China will be erased. I don't think Chinese really understand the mistake they're going to be making. And I pray to God, I pray to God that the Chinese do not make that mistake. Well, what I'm concerned about is we have abandoned our friends in Afghanistan, 
And I understand that Taiwan, only 24 million people, facing 1,400,000,000 who want to take over the island. And so it's like we don't stick by our allies. Right. We get that feeling in Israel also. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's really not good because, you know, America, it's got to be like a wall protecting the free world because we're the free world. So do you think that the Chinese think we have the will to fight back? I think that there are one of two possibilities regarding Afghanistan, which are very, very interesting viewpoints because I picked them up from other people also. Afghanistan is 20 million people. The religion, well, the criminal psychosis is Islam, Sunni Islam. And who's backing the Taliban? Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which is they're bankrolling the United States, supplying oil and cash and everything like that. And this Afghanistan was just a headache for America for 20 years. And so I think that if we are facing a war with China, that America wants the Sunnis to be with America. So if it stays in Afghanistan, the Sunnis will still continue to hate America. But at least if America pulls out, the Sunnis will then stand with America, Britain, Europe, the West in a war against the Chinese. Because don't forget that the Chinese are killing and torturing Muslims in East, yeah. in Western uh, Xinjiang province. Xinjiang province. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about this many times. So the Sunnis are very, very much punished and persecuted by the Chinese who are considered pagans. First, they're communists, but if they were Buddhists, also pagans. And there's also actually a war going on in different countries like Burma, for example, Philippines, Thailand, where they are fighting their Muslim minorities there, the Buddhists are killing a lot of Muslims. This is a religious war. It's an international world war between the Muslims and everybody else. Don't forget that Iran is Shiite, and Iran is backed by China and Russia. But the Sunnis are against Iran also. So I think the United States pulled out like it did from Afghanistan to prepare for the war that's coming. Now, on the other hand, there's the opposite approach that, you know what, the Taliban, the Muslims, the Afghans, kicked out the British in the 1800s, kicked out the Russians, kicked out the Americans. Hey, let the Chinese have it. Let the Chinese, you know, take it over. You got one and a half billion Chinese versus, you know, 20 million Sunni Muslims. The Chinese are going to have them for breakfast. We are, of course, always concerned about Israel. Where does Israel fit into all of this? I mean, when we talk about all these crazy nations and see anti-Semitism in Europe and in America, we're also concerned about the Holy Land. Well, I think that Israel has made a strategic decision to make an alliance with the Sunnis. The primary enemy today is Iran, which is Shiite. And the Iranians are festering there in Syria and Lebanon, Yemen. Now I heard that from Yemen, they're transferring weapons to Somalia for the civil war that's going on there. I don't even know who's who there in Somalia. But the point is that the Israelis now made peace, thanks to President Trump, with six Muslim Arab countries there may be one or two more joining very soon. If you ask me personally, I don't believe in peace with the Muslims, but if the Israeli government is succeeding in doing that, wonderful, at least for now, until the Muslims break their agreement with Israel. So I think Israel is standing by America with its strategic decision to have an alliance with the Sunnis. Well, we've been visiting with Avi Lipkin, and it's always a delight. Avi, thank you so much for coming to Southwest Radio Church. Always glad to come home. Our featured resource today is Dr. Larry Spargimino's verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. This three-DVD set has over four hours of in-depth teaching and insight into the book of Hebrews. Order your copy of By Faith, 
Hebrews verse by verse when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online swrc.com. Tomorrow, we welcome archaeologist and historian Dr. Douglas Petrovich to Watchman on the Wall to present his archaeological and historical evidence for the Exodus. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.